Welcome to the Gambone Law Podcast. My name is Alfonso Gambone, and I am pleased today to be joined by attorney Andrew Duffy of the firm Saltz, Mangaluzzi, Barrett, and Mendeski. I've known Andrew for quite a while. He is a former Navy JAG officer. Following his career in the Navy, he worked for a defense firm, a civil defense firm. And uh, for the past, I believe, decade or so, he has worked on the plaintiff side, representing victims who uh, unfortunately have suffered catastrophic injuries and in some cases, uh, representing families of individuals who have unfortunately been killed by another person's negligence or by some type of faulty product. So Andrew is a great guest. He's a great resource. In today's episode, we're going to speak about an area that is becoming more and more litigious as the years go on. Since 2010, the city of Philadelphia alone has settled over $100 million in police misconduct cases. And in today's episode, Andrew and I will discuss those cases, how his firm represents individuals in these cases, and and what they look for in these cases. I think it's a great topic. It's a topic that's going to be in the news a lot moving forward, both locally and nationally. So I hope you enjoy it and enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Today, again, I'm pleased to be joined by attorney Andrew Duffy, whose law firm, Saltz-Mangaluzzi is now involved in this area of the law. And Andrew, welcome to the podcast today. Alfonso, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Andrew, this is one of the areas that I think is becoming more and more, I guess to use the word, litigious. Um, It's an area where I think in the past, perhaps we didn't look at filing potential lawsuits against police departments and cities. So can you kind of tell us how this came about? Sure. I think you're, you're seeing into a world that always exists. I mean, let's face it. You have really, really good cops out there. You have you know, cops out there putting their life on the line to keep us all safe. And like any other profession in society, you have some bad apples. And now with the advent of more videos on all everybody's cell phones, social media, immediate posting of what people see as far as the interaction between civilians and police, you are seeing much more of it because it's it's being captured. It's no longer the victim's word against the police officer's word. And so you are seeing a little more litigation. Uh, unfortunately, you're absolutely right that Philadelphia in particular has paid out many, many claims over the last decade. And but I'll highlight that that is a very, very small minority of the police officers that are stepping out of bounds and creating these claims, as as opposed to those that are trying to really do the right thing. So now these cases, what is a law firm like yours looking for in a case when when a person or a family comes to you and says that we think that we have a possible claim involving police misconduct or if you want to call it police brutality, what are you looking for? Well, there's obviously different levels of police brutality, police misconduct. We are looking for the most serious, egregious levels. Um, We will not handle a case unless it has led to either a unquestionably bad shooting uh, or a egregiously 
bad case of police misconduct and brutality. Uh, many times we have people call us who were arrested for potentially a legitimate reason and uh, they claim the police officer banged their head as they're being put into the squad car. That's not going to be a case in, in our world. You need an egregious constitutional violation where either they took your life or they falsely arrested you and took away your liberty uh, or the facts are there. Believe it or not, this still happens around the country where you were framed for a crime that you never committed. And uh, you know, we had a an actual police officer that I represented down in Atlantic City that was wrongfully accused of his wife's murder, went to jail, and was his little kids were told that daddy murdered your mom. And so it turned out to not be true because it was a serious error on the part of the coroner, and he was fully exonerated. So stuff like that, serious stuff. We're not talking stuff that may be viewed as people as serious to them, but in the grand scheme of things is that not that serious in the system. In that particular case, how long did that person spend uh, in, in incarceration? A little over eight months. Eight and months? A, and a police officer in jail is, is never a good thing. Right, right, so okay. Uh, so now, in these types of cases, in terms of the defendants that you would name, is it the department, the city, both? Is it the individual officers? What? Well, I mean, how, I mean, when you actually file a claim for misconduct, what does that look like in terms of main defendants? The main defense are going to be the uh, police officers themselves. You always name them individually. Sometimes it's one officer that was involved in a, in a wrongful death, bad shooting. Uh, sometimes it's several officers that just beat the hell out of somebody that did not deserve that or was surrendering. Uh, then on separate claims, you file the employer of the officer, whether it be the city of Philadelphia, New York City, Chicago, they are always brought in under a Supreme Court case called Monell that allows you to sue for claims specifically against the employer, not because they're responsible for the egregious acts of the officer, but because they have some type of, of custom or policy that violates constitutional rights. So that's who it always is. It's the officers and it's their employers. Okay. And then in terms of the firms defending these suits, um, I would imagine that, that, the, that the city has, their, uh, has a firm representing them and then the officer, would their union be defending that? Or how does that typically, I mean, what type of defense teams they typically have involved in these cases? The officers many times will have individual defense attorneys. Um, whether or not that's funded by the union usually depends on the egregiousness of the officer's act. Okay. Uh, the city will always have their in-house attorneys that work for the city, and sometimes they will bring in outside counsel if they think it's going to end up at trial. So that's the kind of the land of the defense attorneys. And unfortunately, um, you know, these cases are legally difficult to prevail. You have to really know the law inside out. Police officers have what's called qualified immunity that our Supreme Court, our Supreme Court, I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court has said that unless the officer violated a clearly protected constitutional right and acted wholly unreasonably, uh, that they are going to be 
granted qualified immunity, which not only means that they don't have to pay money, but they can't be sued at all. Uh, you also have, these are, these are heavily defended cases. And so you really have to know the in and out of the legal intricacies of not only the state law claims, but also we can talk about the main claim that you bring in these cases is a civil rights claim under the original Civil Rights Act, Section 1983. So now, Andrew, a lot of these cases, it seems like we're seeing more and more of police being charged criminally, whether it be for some type of assault or in most recently, there's been an officer in Philadelphia charged with murder. Now, when you have an officer charged criminally, how does that factor into your um, evaluation of the case? Well, as far as the valuation of the case, whenever you have the officer that we are through our pleadings and client accusing of misconduct, if that officer is charged criminally, that obviously furthers our pursuits of justice. I mean, but it's but the interplay of the criminal and civil law becomes very complex. For example, immediately if there is a if there's a criminal proceeding, the DA's office will intervene into our civil case and ask that our court shut our case down in what's called a motion for a stay until the criminal case is over. And then we have to walk a tightrope because what our clients want is they want a sense of justice. And many a times they can obtain at least partially that sense of justice through the criminal prosecution. So we don't want to interfere with the criminal prosecution, but at the same time, we want to keep our civil case moving forward. So that's the original battleground. We want to fight that motion to stay, keep our case going. And many times our cases are stayed. They are basically shut down until there is some resolution of the criminal case. But moving forward in our criminal case, if there is a conviction, then that is extremely helpful because we can use that conviction to our advantage in the civil litigation. Well, I mean, with with regards to a court shutting down the civil litigation while the criminal case is active, is that because potentially the defendant who is named civilly and the defendant who has been charged criminally, there's a possibility that that defendant may incriminate himself or herself during the course of that civil litigation? Is that the concern? There, there is an overriding concern with the criminal defendant's Fifth Amendment rights. Sure. And so the discovery, the ability to obtain information in a civil case, as you are aware, is far more expansive than in a criminal case. Whereas the prosecutor pretty much controls everything that they're supposed to turn over to the defense in a, in a uh, criminal prosecution. We as civil plaintiff's attorneys, we proactively go after our pieces of information by conducting depositions, by sending out interrogatories. And what the DA is interested in is not having their criminal case screwed up by a civil attorney taking depositions of witnesses or taking trying to take depositions of the actual culprit, the perpetrator. Uh, they want to cleanly try their criminal case, and then they want the civil case to go forward after that so that nothing interferes with the criminal case. That's their position. That's what we're usually countering. We're saying that we can move forward in a mutually beneficial way in our civil case in order to keep the civil case going 
because justice delayed is justice denied. Uh, because as you're aware, these criminal cases can sometimes take you know, two, two and a half years now, especially with the COVID backlog. So we are always fighting that as far as the stay of the civil case. So in situations where, let's talk about the criminal process for a second, where a judge or jury convicts an individual of the crime of aggravated assault or murder, would that conviction possibly hurt a civil case in the sense that the person's convicted and they find that they that they committed this crime of murder or aggravated assault, and therefore it allows the department or the city to say, well, this officer went rogue. He wasn't following our policy. He did something that was completely out of line and we shouldn't be held liable. You can hold the officer liable, but you can't hold us liable. Can that happen? That could happen. In fact, those arguments are made and you will find cases around the country that those arguments have been successful. But what I have seen is a, a successful criminal prosecution is always helpful to the civil case because those officers that usually go rogue, it's not a one-off rogue intention. Usually they have a background that there is plenty of foresight that these officers have been going rogue for a long, long time. And then you're able to bring Monell claims to show that there was an informal custom and practice that allowed this, let's say, excessive force to just go on and on and on with this officer. Under that Monell case, you're also allowed to bring failure to properly train cases. And you can link in the failure to train with an officer that has been going rogue and rogue and rogue for a long time. So yes, you're absolutely right. That can that work in the defense favor, the more egregious and criminal that an officer acted, it can around, you'll see cases like that around the country. But I am of firm belief that if you have a criminal, successful criminal prosecution, that's, that's only going to aid the civil prosecution. So on the flip side of that, where a judge or jury acquits an individual, and I mean, obviously the standard in a criminal court is guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and the, and the civil standard is a preponderance standard. I mean, that, I guess, an acquittal, how would that affect how you litigate the uh, civil side of a case? Well, there's the, there's the actual legal consequences. The actual legal consequences is an acquittal is inadmissible in a civil case. Period. End of story. Because you have, a, as you mentioned, a much higher burden of proof in the criminal case beyond a reasonable doubt. So you have a preponderance of evidence, which is just the judicial scales. If they tip one millimeter in favor of the plaintiff, then you win by a preponderance of evidence. So because you have a much less stringent burden of proof in a civil case. The mere fact that the prosecution could not meet the beyond a reasonable doubt standard in a criminal case is inadmissible in your civil case. Now, that's the actual letter of the law. But practically, let's say we have a case that all of Philadelphia hears about. Then what I have to do as a civil attorney is I have to make sure that the jurors that I'm putting on the jury panel aren't aware that there was an acquittal because the discussion that we just had sometimes doesn't get well understood by jurors as far as the difference between the criminal world and the civil world. Some jurors may say, hey, this guy already was prosecuted and he was acquitted. Why should we be doing this? 
So practically, we have to look at that hard whenever there is an acquittal, because we have to make sure that our jury pool has not been tainted. So now in terms of these cases and valuing these cases, I mean, obviously, death is a completely different valuation. But in terms of a situation where a person is not, does not, unfortunately, die, a person that suffers injuries, how... How, I mean, what is the process of determining or asking for a, a certain value assigned to a, a dollar amount? I mean, how is that done? Well, in Pennsylvania, as opposed to, say, New York, in Pennsylvania, as a trial attorney, I'm not allowed to stand up in a civil courtroom and ask for a specific amount of money for a constitutional violation or a personal injury. The only thing I'm allowed to ask for and present to the jury money-wise is economic damages lost wages, past medicals, future medicals. Um, so because of that, the value of these cases nationally is all over the board. And that usually is dictated by the egregiousness of the police officers or, or public servants' unconscionable act, the egregiousness or level of the constitutional violation. I mentioned before, the gentleman that was wrongly accused of murder being in jail for eight months. Well, what if he was in there for eight years? That's a completely different valuation. So you're taking a fact-intensive approach to valuation that correlates to the egregiousness of what happened to the plaintiff. And the constitutional violation itself is, is worth something. To deprive someone of their constitutional rights is, has inherent value itself even if the person was uninjured. But then if you have the constitutional violation and then the person was rendered a quadriplegic, then that's when you're talking multiple tens of millions of dollars or, or in the ultimate injury, a death, as we saw with, with uh, Mr. Floyd's extremely unfortunate situation. Understood. So now in terms of the length of time that these cases can take, I mean, obviously every case is different, but I mean, on average, from the time that a complaint is filed to possible trial or a possible settlement, what is the typical timeline in terms of these cases? Well, you have two different dockets because it depends on what claims you bring. Any state claims can be brought if it happens in Philadelphia, in Philadelphia County. Philadelphia County has a wonderfully run and organized court system in that you as a civil plaintiff, are pretty much guaranteed by their deadlines to have a trial date within a three-year window. And that may seem like a long time, but usually when I tell my plaintiffs that, they're a little shocked that I'm referring to that as a rocket docket. Uh, but if you go out to the collar counties in Bucks, Montgomery, who quite frankly, it's just a numbers game, they have fewer civil judges, then you could be looking at a four to five-year pursuit of justice. Now, so Philadelphia is about a two and a half to three year track. Then whenever you bring a constitutional civil rights violation, you end up in federal court. So usually here, the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. And we refer to the EDPA where judges want to resolve things quickly as the rocket dock. You will have less time to get your discovery done and you will get quicker to trial in a federal court system than you will in just about any state court system in the country. So that could be two years. Okay, and then, and then in terms of 
in that two-year time, I mean, obviously you're you're collecting discovery and, and you're sending out discovery. During that time, in terms of resolving it, do you have settlement conferences or what is what is happening between the defense counsel and the plaintiff's counsel with regards to possible resolution? Are there are there court order meetings or are there court order conferences or what is yeah, that? These cases, civil rights cases, police brutality, wrongful shooting cases, usually go the distance. And any attorney handling them has to be upfront and honest with their clients that these are likely to go the distance. Uh, they are very uh, motion and briefing intensive. There will be a lot of purely legal decisions that the presiding judge has to make. That said, the, the egregiousness and the likelihood of success by the plaintiff as viewed by the defense attorney, that will govern whether or not there's early discussions of settlement or no discussions of settlement at all. If the defendant believes that the plaintiff can't make their case, usually there's not a lot of settlement discussion. Until you get to basically the end of the case, after discovery, after expert reports have been exchanged, then there will be court-ordered settlement conferences where a, a judge tries to bring the sides together. And sometimes, although rarely in these cases, uh, much more prominent in other civil cases are private mediations. And in terms of private mediation, the mediator, how is that person selected? Uh, a, if the defense attorney calls me and says, we would like to propose mediation, my response will be, let me check with my client. Assuming my client signs off on mediation, I'll say we're agreeable to mediation. Please send us a list of your proposed mediators. And then we end up working from that list. If nobody on that list is acceptable, which is highly unusual, then we send our own list. And then that's the initial negotiation of who the mediator is going to be. In the early days of alternative dispute resolution, there used to be people that were pegged and pigeonholed as plaintiff-friendly mediators, defense-friendly mediators. They are extinct. They have been vetted out because nobody would use them. If you're a defense attorney and you saw them as plaintiff's friendly, they're not being selected. So now you have a core, especially in Philadelphia, you have a core of outstanding mediators that usually that that's the only thing that plaintiff's counsel and defense counsel are going to be able to agree to. And in terms of mediation, I would imagine that's a lot more uh, expeditious than, than a trial track at a court, correct? It, it is. I will tell all my clients that as much as we love to try cases, which is my favorite thing to do in the practice of law, that a settlement where you wrap it up and you receive a negotiated, agreed to set sum of money which in, within a very small time frame is the way to go if you can get there because the trial, although you could potentially get a much larger verdict, uh, could take not only the trial time, but the appellate time, you could be on appeal, especially in these cases, for, for three to five years or more. Uh, usually, whichever side loses the trial is going to appeal. So in no way, in no way do you give the defense a discount. In no way do you uh, settle the case anywhere near on the cheap at all to avoid going to trial. That's just not the way to practice. That's a disservice to your client. But if they get into a pre-established range that we can, in good faith, recommend, yes, we're in the range of what a jury can give to you, 
or would give to you, then it'll be a client decision on whether they want to settle the case. Well, Andrew, this has been so informative. I just want to thank you for, for doing this today. I realize that you're very, very busy. And I think that it's brought out a lot of issues that I wasn't aware of. And these are cases that, I mean, we're seeing more and more of. And I think that they're important cases. And I think you're doing just a, a great job for people and their families representing them in an area that, unfortunately, in the past wasn't brought to light. So, again, thank you for doing this. And I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. And Alfonso, thanks for doing what you do. You're in the trenches every day fighting for constitutional rights. And uh, you're fighting the good fight against the prosecutors with all the resources in the world. And I've watched your practice grow from you being a one-man shop, and it's been impressive. And it's a real honor for me to be on with you today because you're one of the best criminal defense attorneys in Philadelphia, and people would be foolish not to hire you. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate it. Andrew, if... If someone wants to contact you and your firm for a possible case that they think that they might have, how would they do that? Sure, it's Andrew Duffy at Salts, Mongoluzzi and Bendesky. And my direct number is 215-575-2988, where my email is aduffy, A-D-U-F-F-Y, at S is in Sam, M is in Mike, B is in Bravo, B is in Bravo.com. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. 